Welcome to this very special edition of the podcast, where we will highlight a few of the podium presentations from the recent 2020 POSNA annual meeting. I am your host, Dr. Josh Holt, broadcasting from the Stead Family Children's Hospital in Iowa City. On today's episode, we will discuss a couple of the articles presented in the neuromuscular section of the recent POSNA meeting. We are pleased to welcome to the program two guest moderators, as well as the authors of the abstracts, to engage in a further discussion on some great topics in pediatric orthopedics. But before we begin, I would like to give a shout out to all those medical providers who continue to work on the front lines in this pandemic. To Carter's wife, Meredith, and to my little sister, Shawnee, thank you all very much for what you're doing. All right, now let's get to the program. The first study that we are going to discuss is from the neuromuscular session of the meeting and is entitled, Long-Term Outcomes of Ambulatory Function in Adults with Cerebral Palsy, Evaluating Change from Adolescence. In this study, the authors aim to evaluate the long-term effectiveness of pediatric orthopedic care aimed at improving mobility function and quality of life in children and youth with cerebral palsy. They do this by using objective evidence of mobility outcomes for adults with cerebral palsy who were treated as children in a pediatric specialty care center. The authors were able to recruit 120 adults with cerebral palsy to return for gait analyses and further evaluation. The average age of adult patient was 29 years old with an average follow-up of 13 years. Results of their study showed that gait pattern and gross motor function had minimal or no clinically meaningful change from adolescence to adulthood. The authors suggest that the homogeneous orthopedic care that these patients received at a specialized center and the relatively young adult patients who returned for follow-up may have contributed to these great results. The authors believe that their results support the use of gait analyses to guide musculoskeletal correction of deformities during childhood, as most adults in their cohort experienced minimal functional decline into the third and fourth decade of adult life. Now, we have the really unique and special privilege to welcome to the program study author Dr. Wade Schrader from Nemours DuPont Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, and moderator Dr. Vanita Swaroop from Lori Children's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for highlighting our paper. We're happy to talk about it. Great. Well, I can take over. Wade, I thought your paper was really interesting, and I think it focuses on an important topic of care of late adolescence and how to achieve the best outcomes in adulthood, which is something that we'd all like to learn more about. So I have a few questions for you. My first question is, what do you think after looking at your outcomes? What do you think are the key advances in recent years or the last decade in the care of children and adolescents with cerebral palsy that contribute to what you observed of the avoidance of decline in function that we have previously known to be true in adulthood? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. We, um, we wanted to really look at a cohort of adults that we felt like through adolescence had really the, the best orthopedic care that we could provide them, you know, in our location. And that was really predicated around uh, expert decision-making guided by motion analysis. And that was, you know, we're big proponents of our gate lab. We feel like it gives us objective data to try to uh, move these kids toward as normal a function as we can. 
uh, in adolescence and in childhood. Um, and we wanted to try to follow that cohort out into adulthood to see if at least our theory and our philosophy of treatment gave us some outcomes that were better than what we had been seeing in some of the adult literature. Uh, so if you had to say one thing, I would say that the surgical decision-making, individualized surgical decision-making based on gait analysis was probably, I think, the most important aspect of our treatment modalities for these kids. Great. And so my next question is, what is your typical protocol at your institution for when to obtain gait analysis? Do you use it specifically for preoperative planning? Are you able to get routine postoperative follow-up and at what time point? Um, kind of how do you guys think of using computerized gait analysis? Yeah, so we, you know, we've been very fortunate to, to be in an environment where we've really leveraged the pairs um, by convincing them that we feel like our outcomes are better with gait analysis, that our surgical decision-making is better. Um, that's not always the case in every location around the country. Other places really struggle convincing their payers of that. But I think in our location, with uh, all the work that Dr. Freeman Miller did over the years here at DuPont, we have that ability. So we get gait analysis on almost all of our preoperative ambulatory kids with CP. Uh, we are able to get postoperative gait analyses uh, between one and two years on the majority of our kids. Uh, it's not nearly as high as, as what we do for our pre-ops, but it's still pretty high. I would probably say it's in the 80 to 90 percent range uh, for our, that one to two year post-op period. Um, and so we're pretty, uh, we're pretty big believers in that. So the majority of the kids get that, get that process. Um, we will, if we are considering a uh, surgical intervention, a single event, multi-level surgery in their younger childhood, and by younger being less than 10, then all these kids will often then have multiple gait analysis as they grow up into adolescence. But for the purpose of this study, we really were looking at their adolescent gait study when we compare it to the adult. That's great that you guys have developed that system in order to allow you to capture such great data on this population. It's a major advantage. Specifically, you mentioned that you guys um, were very diligent in addressing Crouchgate in adolescence. So uh, do you have any tips or pearls for what you feel like are the highlights of the protocol that your team used in addressing Crouch in order to achieve these adult outcomes? Yeah, I think Crouchgate is a, is a huge thing for adolescents heading into adulthood. I, I will say that I think, um, you know, we have it's interesting how your patient population may evolve over time. Um, I, I think the majority of these patients obviously were being treated 10 to 20 years ago, primarily by Dr. Miller and Dr. Dabney. Um, and it was uh, an interesting uh, cohort also, I think, of how they were getting physical therapy in our areas. They were pretty aggressively in treating, in treating crouch gait. They did it mostly by soft tissue surgery. Uh, there wasn't a, lot, a large number of extension osteotomies uh, in this cohort. That was really kind of considered more of a salvage surgery. Um, Dr. Miller did some uh, posterior capsulotomies. And so uh, I think it's a, it's a little bit different than some maybe how we'd approach Crouchgate today. But, um, but definitely is one of a what I would call a proactive surgical philosophy of trying to minimize Crouchgate 
at, at all costs and being pretty persistent with these kids. I will say, I think we see a little bit different patient population now. We see kids that maybe are a little bit more neglected, getting a little bit less physical therapy with larger knee flexion contractures than maybe what we saw 20, 10 to 20 years ago here at DuPont. Uh, and those kids were having to think more aggressively along the lines of extension osteotomy. But uh, the, the majority of, I think, the majority of these kids that had surgery directed at their crouch gait was really, in addition to correcting any lever arm malfunction uh, and any malrotations, was hamstring lengthenings and soft tissue surgery. Great. It'll be really interesting, I think, to see how the cohort that's getting more of the extension osteotomies fares into adulthood if we see the same success. Um, do you have any tips on how to get 120 adults to return for gait analysis? Because I think that's a major accomplishment in and of itself. Yeah, we had, uh, we had our, a flowchart there that we presented that talked about how we had 646 that were really uh, identified and met criteria. And, uh, you know, in our mobile society that today, it actually was quite a bit of challenge. We, uh, we engaged some high school and college volunteers and research assistants so who were probably a little bit more savvy at social media than, than we were uh, to go out and try to find those people. Uh, and we were able to find 171 of them. We still couldn't find 468, and that's obviously a, a weakness in the study. Uh, in that there is a relative, about two-thirds of the overall original cohort we couldn't find. But we were able to find about a third of them. And of those, uh, you know, I think it was a, it's, a, it's a statement about how much they were really appreciative of Dr. Miller's and Dr. Dabney's treatment over the years, that uh, of those 171, uh, we really were able to get 136 of them to participate in the study, and 120 of them come back for the gate analysis. So, I mean, we offered them gift cards and, you know, meal vouchers while they were here, but it really was a very um, modest uh, offering to try to, to, to bring the patients back. One thing that we did do, though, was that we did tell them that we would do basically a gate analysis for the adult cohort. Uh, and that uh, we would call them with their results to, to encourage them, uh, to reassure them that things were going pretty well. Occasionally we did find some things that we felt like uh, we would recommend to have a, an adult orthopedic evaluation. And I thought that was a really big important aspect of this in that the patients were, you know, they were appreciative of DuPont in general but uh, they really appreciated us reaching out to them and kind of giving them a little bit of feedback on their function. Yeah, that's great. The power of social media and some personal interaction, huh? I thought it was interesting, your finding that 60% of the variability in adult gait velocity was explained by adolescent gait velocity. Can you provide some insight into that finding? Do you think that should change or impact in any way our focus on the care of adolescent patients? You know, by and large, the, the, the data that we showed showed really not a lot of changes from their adolescent values to their adult values. I, I mean, there were obviously some patients in the cohort that got a little better, and there were some patients in the cohort that got a little bit worse. But by and large, there really weren't big changes um, between, the two, between the two groups. And... Um, and we found that very interesting. And so the, in the regression analysis, we tried to, to go through and really try to see if we could, you know, pick up things that were 
that might clue us in, as you said, that we might give us targets to really go after to try to improve. And really, unfortunately, we didn't really find much. Uh, the biggest thing that we found was, that, again, the 60% the of the variability of the adult gait velocity was explained by adolescent gait velocity. And, you know, we don't really do a ton to improve velocity in gait. It's kind of a self-selected thing. It's directly proportional to their overall level of disability and their GMFM scores. And so um, it, it basically said uh, that you know, the folks that tended to do pretty well in terms of, uh, of gait outcomes as adults were the ones that tended to be better as adolescents. Um, and so I'm not sure that it was really giving us a good information in terms of targets, other than to try to it, reinforce our philosophy that we felt like our philosophy of trying to target gait impairments in general and make them as normal as possible, that that was probably worthwhile. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, this is my last question for you. You mentioned that your uh, patients sampled in adulthood were relatively young in adulthood. So looking forward as that patient cohort moves later into their adulthood, do you have any recommendations for what advice we should be giving our adult patients based on what you've seen in the study in terms of how to avoid functional decline going forward, whether it's maintaining activity levels, strengthening, um, et cetera? Did you observe any trends in your population or do you have any tips for us there? Yeah, I think, you know, again, you know, compared to some of the, you know, the negative press and the negative outcomes that are out there and some of the adults with CP in terms of declining function, those might have been a little bit older. And, and we definitely gave that caveat with this study. Our mean age was right at 30. Um, and so, uh, but, but what we, I think the message that you said, Vanita, really is important is that you know, really over into their second and in, into their third and even fourth decades for some patients, they were on the, by and large, able to maintain their mobility. And, um, and that's really important. And, and if you can do that into your 30s and 40s, doing those same sorts of things that you did in your, in your teens and 20s should paint a pretty good outcome or at least as good an outcome as we think we possibly could provide for these adults into their 50s and 60s. And so that I think strength training is an important, really important thing that we've, that we've talked to our patients about. That's something that we really try to focus on shifting for our adolescents into from medical-based therapy into more community-based fitness in terms of general activity and uh, in terms of general strength training and things. We didn't really present it on this, you know, short time period. But we did have an e-poster that had our promise scores in terms of depression and anxiety. Again, these adults did not find any differences. We didn't show any differences really with that to the general population. And we also did step counts too with a step watch device. And uh, I think that also, the community monitoring of participation in terms of step count, I think it's gonna be a huge thing for us in the future. Um, and that did show a little bit more sensitive changes and the folks that were doing better were ambulating better, uh, almost like a typically developed population. So I think that message that you asked for is to stay as active as possible. Great. Thank you so much, Wade. I really enjoyed your paper, and I appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Vanita. Yeah, it was so great to have you both on here. Dr. Schrader, hats off to you guys for an important study to really show that we can make a real strong impact on these 
adolescence and see those results last into adulthood. And, and Dr. Sarup, we appreciate your time joining us and thoughtful questions that provided some additional information that we can all hopefully take into our practice in caring for these patients. Great. Thanks, Thanks so much. So great to hear from the authors themselves and the really thoughtful and stimulating questions from our moderators. We're going to stay in the neuromuscular session with our next abstract. We will be joined shortly by author Dr. Lane Wimberly from the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas, Texas, and moderator Dr. Andy Georgiadis from Gillette Children's Hospital. The study by Dr. Wimberly and his team entitled Botulinum Toxin and Casting May Delay or Prevent Surgery in Spastic Hemiplegic Cerebral Palsy. In this study, the authors evaluate the progression to surgery following injections and casting for equinus contractures in patients with isolated spastic hemiplegic cerebral palsy. Retrospective review of 632 consecutive patients with cerebral palsy over 19 years was performed to identify 52 patients meeting inclusion criteria. The average age at presentation was 4.8 years, and the average follow-up was 4.9 years. 48 of the 52 patients had at least one injection cycle. 56% of patients never had equinus surgery. In those patients who eventually did have equinus surgery, this was delayed by 3.6 years on average. Patients who eventually had surgery had an average of four injection cycles, while those who did not have surgery had an average of 2.9 injection cycles. No difference was found in dorsiflexion when comparing initial passive motion with passive motion after the first injection nor with passive motion at final follow-up. Despite this lack of statistical improvement in motion, the authors believe that botulinum toxin injection and casting for equinus deformity was able to prevent progression and delay surgery for an average of 3.6 years in patients with spastic hemiplegic cerebral palsy. So let's bring them to the show. Please welcome Drs. Lane Wimberly and Andy Georgiadis to the program. Happy to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. Dr. Wimberly, could you describe the logistics of the casting protocols at your institution? The study describes these as coming from a neurology clinic and being a physician-directed set of protocols, but who directs that and makes the decisions while the kids are being casted? Yeah, sure. So obviously there's a lot of interest in casting protocols for toe-walking and Aquinas and other sorts of treatments these days. I'll preface this with this group of patients was the start of this treatment was in 1998 and ended in 2016. So uh, I think it'd be foolish to assume the entire thing was consistent and clean throughout the process. But these are recruited through a neurology clinic. Uh, and the neurologist that ran this clinic was very particular about his uh, treatment. And so he put on a cast that he was taught to do by a series of orthopedic surgeons that's basically a soft roll cast with some plaster underneath it. And in almost all situations, except for maybe patients that were coming long distances, he would initiate casting about one to three weeks after injection so that theoretically there had been a little bit of uh, the, the medicine beginning to start to work. And then he would cast between one and three weeks uh, basically until dorsiflexion was achieved or until tolerance was really not being uh, dealt with by the kid any longer. So uh, it's pretty consistent, but there were probably some changes throughout that time course. Understood. And can you talk a little bit about the surgical indications for calf lengthening in this cohort? I know that you've listed one of the weaknesses as being different criteria over yeah. time between surgeons, but in generalities, could you speak about when a child would maybe have been deemed to have failed casting and proceed to a surgical treatment? 
Of course. So I, I do want to stress again, this is a almost a 20-year cohort with surgeons coming and going, and obviously the patient population was out of a neurology clinic. So the it's not as though the the neurology records necessarily exactly gave reasons for surgery, uh, but in general, they were either a feeling of failure whereby uh, the patient was remained in Aquinas that was either inhibiting brace wear or inhibiting shoe wear or significant changes in gait, or in some cases, our paper really tried to be clean and looked just at the Achilles, but if patients are having multi-level surgery at other sites and they had a residual Aquinas, then they would probably be addressed at the same time. Unfortunately, there's no hard and fast residual 10 degrees of Aquinas with the knee extended equals surgery. It really had to do with the the other findings for the child and um, sort of the, the whether it was felt that the Aquinas was inhibiting gait or brace wear. Okay. And can you talk about either your personal experience or your institution's experience with casting alone without botulinum toxin? Do you perceive similar results? Because about 40% of your children went on to surgery in this cohort, and is it possible that casting alone could have gotten you to a similar rate of deferred surgery? So overall, I don't uh, cast very many children without an adjunctive treatment of Botox if they are spastic. Uh, we do have a relatively uh, burgeoning population of apparently idiopathic toe walkers that we try and cast out Aquinas, and our results are probably hit and miss like most places. Some seem to respond quite well and some don't. But for the spastic population, it's pretty rare that I would cast without an adjunctive antispasticity treatment of Botox injections. So um, I, don't, I don't know that we have a lot that we could say uh, that would uh, go to that. Do you employ a similar protocol and approach to Aquinas and diplegic children, or do you approach them differently? So interestingly enough, I think that we treat them differently, and I, I'm not even sure that some of the basis of this paper is what we would do nowadays. Uh, obviously, there's some controversy about the potential long-term and detrimental effects of persistent Botox injections. And when we see the diplegic kids, the jump gate kids that are relatively young, I try and nurse them along, recognizing that natural history will probably lead them to crouch if we're not careful with their plantar flexors. So it may be that they get one or two rounds of Botox to maintain brace wear, and then we let them bounce around in a bit of Aquinas over time. So this, this cohort that we looked at is very specific to the hemiplegic population, and I'm not sure I would extrapolate the results to a diplegic and then cause them potential long-term harm by weakening their plantar flexors. Okay. And could you talk just a little bit more about those harmful effects that may not be entirely reversible? I assume you're referring to some of this data that shows even a single injection can lead to some muscle volume loss and sarcopenia. So how would you characterize the trends in Botox use at your institution up to present day and what do you foresee in the future? I don't think our institution is really um, at the forefront of looking at the histological changes, so I'm clearly going from other literature. Uh, I do believe that there has to be some level of detrimental effect over prolonged use of Botox injections. That being said, I think especially for the younger child with a gait impairment, one or two cycles is probably not that inappropriate, especially if in some of these cases it can avoid a surgical procedure. But I, I do think the days of injection every three to four months for tone management are probably gone. Um, so I think we are pretty um, 
focused in our use now and have to have a clear indication, either a loss of range or a need for bracing uh, that would push us to try and do that now. So you would characterize your use currently as more judicious as in the past with fewer treatments, if at all? Well, I think that we still do them. I, I would not say that we are a site that has abandoned it completely, but we are more uh, judicious about where we would use it. So for these kids, if it's an Aquinas contracture and it's inhibiting a brace that would otherwise help them, then we probably would try a round or two, but we're, we're not going to get to anyone that has 10 rounds any longer, like the outlier of this study. Um, and upper extremity, which we don't address at all in this paper, is very judicious, such that we have to have objective findings that we're going after before we start injecting them there. All right, Dr. Wimberly, thanks so much. Sure. Well, thank you both very much for joining us on this special edition of the POSNA 2020 Virtual Meeting Edition. Please join us for other podcasts where we will highlight the other sessions of the meeting and get additional insight from the authors and moderators on these important pediatric topics.